From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey, practice professor at the Wharton School, hosting with my good friend and longtime collaborator, Audie Weiner, professor of statistics here at Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania. Our collaborators, Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow, are out doing Shane and Eric things today. So it's me and Audie for the duration. Those guys will be back. Some combination of us are here every week to do the show. We are recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do these days. The show will go up Wednesday morning on Sirius XM, be replayed a few times over the week, and we'll have a podcast posted either Wednesday afternoon or Thursday morning. Adi, good afternoon to you. I see that you're home after lots of traveling. The traveling man, Adi Weiner, is back in his home library. How are you today? I'm great. You know, we're about to kick off classes on Monday, Cade. So uh, this is my uh, return to home and my home office. Oh, you're be ball- the, the, your, your, your obligations bring you back home. I'm going to beat you to it, Adi. I'm teaching out in San Francisco on Saturday morning. I'm going to kick my class off a couple of days before yours. Even look at that. Wow. Are you are you doing the MBA who are who are schlepped out to San Francisco for the semester? Or are you doing the executives? I'm doing the MBAs, but that class doesn't start till later in September. Saturday's class is uh, the first of the executives, the executive MBAs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're back on it, man. The end of summer is here. Um, yeah. What? For what? Liberty. <laughs> I know it's a little, a little hard to believe. That also means we got some good sports about to happen. We'll talk more about that as the show goes on. Let's start by talking a little bit about COVID. We don't need to do the full quarter on it. We probably won't do the full quarter on it. But I am curious what's caught your eye in the world of COVID nineteen. Well, uh, I guess the first thing, a Pfizer applied for finally applied for a new uh, uh, approval for its new vaccine that's tailored to Omicron slash BA five. I'm I'm skeptical that it's going to take because I don't think much people much care about it anymore. Um, but uh, it, a year ago is when we would have expected this. I mean, it's been almost two years since we saw the vaccine, and there was never a new version popped out, despite the fact that we're well aware that the new variants are are essentially um, are, you're un- unprotected with respect to transmission with the new variants. Um, so it's interesting that that co- that came up. Um, that certainly caught my eye. Um, I'm, I, uh, you, you pointed me to an article in the LA Times about a couple of new um, variants popping up in California. I think that's much to do about nothing. I think. Um, that's well, it's not nothing. just that they're popping up in California, but that they're making noise in other countries, in China and India. In fact, in some places, they're competing reasonably well with uh, BA5. And so there's some there's an open question, at least, about how they're going to compete um, over here. Well, I think the real thing is, is are we going to see a surge again? Right. Mm-hmm. So we haven't been waves of of new variants. There was the initial wave. Then we got vaccinated. Then we had the, the, the Delta. Then there was the Omicron. And then there was the BA5 sub Omicron bump. And now we're down here again, finally, in, in the United States and much of the world. Um, it, and it, it kind of pers- travels around. So are we going to get another spike in infections? It's Im- important to point out that the last BA5 did not produce any significant increase. 
So you're saying that we had the BA5 spike, but it didn't lead to increased deaths. Yeah, it didn't. And, and it wasn't really much of an impact on most people's lives. And most people at this point, at least in the United States and most of the world, are essentially expecting infections and more infections to pop on. And they're just not that concerned about it. And, and uh, I think that we've moved into a completely new and I think hopeful stage of the pandemic where it's just something endemic and we just live with it. And in fact, when I hear people uh, you know, running to get tested multiple times, I think, why are you doing that? Um, wait till you get sick and see what happens. And uh, it's not a time to stop your life because you think you may have been exposed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, the caveats, all the usual caveats apply. So those who are compromised in some way or have, uh, you know, a, any adjacent illnesses, they, they, they're living in a different world, right? I mean, this is something, you know, that- I mean, yes, the answer, of course, is yes. But I'm, I think I'm still waiting to see some better data. I just saw an actually an interesting article. I forget uh, where it's sourced, but it's a top journal that essentially tried to predict mortality as a function of lots of things. Obviously, age is the dominant, dominant predictor of mortality. But then if you go to the secondary um, effectors, what are they? And you, everyone likes to point to lots of immunocompromising situations, but it turned out that the one that really made the most difference was active cancer. <laughs> you know? So that's a real problem, probably induced because of chemotherapy. That's a real issue. The, but, the, but the other immunocompromising just didn't really seem to come up as predictors. Mm-hmm. Outside of age, um, outside of extreme obesity um, and active cancer, most of the other things that people are worried about, I think are maybe not, we'll see as we get better and better data, may not be such a big risk factor. And I'll throw out something I've talked about many times. What is uh, uh, the fourth leading thing that we can clearly point to after active cancer, extreme obesity, which of course goes hand in hand with diabetes um, and age dominates everything. The answer is maleness, being maleness. male. Yeah. Yep. Male is, and we talked about this on the show extensively. Yeah. It's uh, it's uh, men are dying from from coronavirus at a substantially higher risk. Do we rate. know the mechanism there? Is it a behavioral mechanism or a physiological mechanism? Well, um, no, nobody really knows. Uh, men tend to die of everything at a much higher rate. Um, and uh, and no one, a lot of those are behavior accidents, for example, overdoses, su- suicides are much more common among men and not suicide attempts. Suicide attempts are much more frequent among women. Suicide, effective suicide okay. completion is much more common. Uh, and no one really knows. Um, but, uh, and, and the COVID death rates are not out of line with a lot of those other, you know, differentials. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, women are just built stronger and <laughs> to last longer. <laughs> well, they, they, I think they also have some behavioral uh they're yeah. better behaviorally. They take, they're more conscientious about their health. They're, they're more responsible. They're more willing to ask for help. I think if I could just generalize across the sexes a little bit, I think there are some studies that would support that. Well, In fact, one of the advantages of being married for men is that the women help look after their health and the men who yeah. aren't married don't have that advantage. And men aren't doing, providing a symmetrical advantage to women, or at least not in proportion. Um, I, I, wanted, I mean, if, if I had a final thing that, that I'm thinking about, I'm curious to whether it's geographic. Um, what I'm noticing is that we almost to be are almost a, a 100%, 180 degree inversion from the beginning. 
in the in the early stages of of the pandemic, almost everybody was you know doing some kind of masking, oh, and and isolation. And now uh, almost everyone is reversed. It was rare to find communities or who weren't doing that. Now it's it's almost everyone is doing very nothing. But you will occasionally find communities that are still living uh, almost as if it's uh, the spring of 2020. And those are the things that that, that you run into and and that that I found are curiosities. Communities where everybody's masking and still not having people over. Um, uh, schools where they're still insisting on social distancing, quarantines, masking. And those are rarer and rarer, but they're still propping up. And when I see them, I'm like, how, what caused these people to continue to do that? And I find that unfathomable. Mm-hmm. Well, in some ways, I think the fall will be interesting to see. It's going to be a tougher test in some sense for the health outcomes because we generally expect a tick up in the transmission and the number of cases due to people coming inside, due to schools. But it may not happen. If it doesn't happen, then I think it's kind of the last hurdle before we really just accept this as de facto or not. We accept this as endemic. Um, Okay, Adi, why don't we let that one sit there then? As we've said before, we are going to begin transitioning to a format where we're not covering COVID in quite as much detail. And we're going to pick up some other public statistical research science issues and do that periodically um, in in the slots where we've been treating COVID. But let's shift gears and talk a little bit about sports analytics. We have uh, a couple of interviews today in the second quarter. We're going to do an interview with Rick Macy, the legendary tennis coach, talk a little bit about tennis in advance of the U.S. Open. And then in the fourth quarter, we talked to an economist from Stanford named Paul Oyer. Paul is a labor economist who's written a new book on sports economics. we got a little bit open topic now. We'll do some in Q3 as well. Adi, I'm pretty sure I know what sporting event has your eye lately. I think um, it may have something to do with a streak or a drought among the New York Yankees. How are you thinking? How are you experiencing? How, how badly are you, are you suffering right now? Well, yeah, I'm suffering very badly, but I will point out that it has allowed me to think about streaky behavior a little bit differently than I always have. And that, from that perspective, might be a good, good turn of events. Okay, so I'm so going to guess that the way it, you've historically thought about it is more or less chance and that streaks happen with far greater frequency than people think from purely mechanistic random devices. Right. And then and, and throw in, you know, changing competition uh, you go through a you know an eleven day game road trip against the American League West. You don't have too much competition. You can run them over. Um, throw in a little bit of injury, and you get even more streakiness. But what? But exactly, chance is the is the fundamental mechanism at work. But what I witnessed here is a team going from um, all time excellent for nearly two thirds of the season to not only mediocrity, but extraordinary, you know, sub-mediocrity, terrible. I mean, 9 and 20 or something in the last, you know, since the All-Star game, um, which was already 60% of the way into the season. And and not only just playing bad on an individual level, there were some injuries, you know, Stanton was out, et cetera, still out, but just almost the whole team just sort of collapsed. The whole bullpen, which looked like it was invo- invincible, just became just riddled with holes. And that led me to wonder what is the role of sort of the, the team spirit, if you will, on the outcome and the, maybe the mental makeup. And we talk about this a lot and I love to make fun of it because you can't measure it. 
<laughs> but how does it how does it actually uh, play in the in the world of professional sports, and what role does that have in both success and failure? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking bigger than I ever thought because I can't <laughs> quite see it any other way. Well, um, welcome to the welcome to the. Uh, it's not even the dark side; it's the light side. Welcome to the light side. Oh wait, you're leaving <laughs> the dark side of statistical mechanical explanations and chance to the human element of the game, entertaining the possibility that it matters even in baseball. So what, what are people saying? What is the best explanation for this? And moreover, let's put it in some kind of context. What precedent do we have for such a dramatic shift? Well, um, I wish I could look, I can only talk about from my own experience. I remember in 1978, the Red Sox collapsed with a 14 game lead over the Yankees in the middle of July. And, and they, ended up uh, being tied at the end of the season. Um, I think what you're, I mean, the, the season's not over. The Yankees still have an eight game lead over Toronto, over uh, Tampa Bay. You know, the East is beating each other up. They're, they're, they're basically four, four or five good teams. You want to include the Red Sox and they just, they're, they're all just terrific. Right. But by the way, let's celebrate the Orioles because they're one of those four or five good teams. They're above 500. Exactly. Surprisingly, mm-hmm. shockingly. In fact, I, I, I got lucky and watched them clip the Sox the other night in the eighth with a nice double down the line to clear the bases. It was good fun. It's fun to see those guys competitive earlier than we expect them to be. We are, um, they're kind of, they're kind of one of the teams I would say it's a Moneyball team because Sig Meidel is the assistant GM down mm-hmm. there. He's a real friend of the sports analytics community. Also our colleague and good buddy, Joe Simmons is a hardcore Baltimore sports fan, and that rubs off on you over the years. So anyway, all about the O's, wondering if they can close the gap and make the wild card. They've got a few games to do it. They have to keep on outperforming, and we don't generally expect organizations to outperform continually, but they're still in the fight. So I'm going to make one observation um, just to relay a communication. One of the things that we think about is the role, what's the role of the manager? And in baseball, it's often belittled. You know, think, what does a manager do, right? I mean, think yeah. about it. I mean, yeah. how many decisions do they have? Uh, the, in, in football, it's considered a, a much bigger, much more important um, role that the coach, they, they, uh, there's so much more strategy, right? I mean, you can fill in the gaps here. But I, I, in communication with baseball people, they keep telling me that the management, that's a, that's a, that is an analyst's kind of, uh, position of of, of, uh, of default, but it isn't a good one. That a, that a genuine manager, an extraordinary manager can contribute as much as an extremely high quality player. And I, I was surprised by that, but I heard enough. By, what, enough by what means? By what means? And that's the question. And the, and, the, and the answer that it was given is to keep, to get their individual players to continually play at their best. Mm-hmm. In other words, essentially inspiration and motivation and leadership to get their players to, to play at, a high, at the highest level. And maybe I forget that, 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 he, that players are human beings and subject to the, the variability of human nature, the, the inability to concentrate, to not take care of themselves, to go out drinking. I don't know what they're doing, right? Um, that potentially an extraordinary manager I, I, we, we, we've been on, I mean, I've, I've raised the issue. I've done it again. I, how does a manager seemingly move from, from team to team, taking a bad team and making them good and doing that again and again and again, if they didn't have something genuinely uh, valuable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I th- potentially one of the reasons why 
the Yankees are never not do are, are just not doing is that they've never had that that leadership. They just don't have it in the in the in the managerial role. Well, it's, I can't evaluate it, can't measure it, I can't can't scream about it. But if if the if the the insiders are right, then they know something I don't know, and and I've got to dig deeper to find some evidence for it. But it may be there. Well, we we there really ought to be more rigorous studies of it. Of course, nothing you're saying is surprising to sports fans and sports writers since the dawn of sports. This mm-hmm. is the way managers are talked about. It's just that, as you said, the analytics, the cognizantized default position is that that stuff is overrated. And it might be overrated, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist at all. It's just that this is a particularly interesting place to look for it, kind of a high bar to look for it in baseball, where we do think of these guys as little, you know, algorithms independently operating, just, you know, mm-hmm. just Trot them out on the field, you know, put their name on the lineup somewhere, trot them out of the field, and they're going to do their thing. Turns out it doesn't always work that way. The other piece that's that the outside an outsider would ask is the, the on-field leadership as well, or the clubhouse leadership. And I'm guessing that if you want to blame the manager, fine, but you might also look for where is the leadership on the team. And has that changed in some way over the last couple of years? Of course, for years. Jeter was, you know, lauded for the role he played and, and, and you guys poo-pooed that probably, but in general, you do need leadership, not only from the manager, but from the, somewhere on the team. What's your sense of where that is? Like, why, let's just embrace this leadership concept in full and explore it in other areas as well. I have no idea. I just have no, no, I don't know how to measure it. I don't know how to judge it. Um, I'm, and I'm really attracted to this idea because I feel that there's this extraordinary swing that can't be explained without some sort of missing variable that yeah. has not, it can't be an individual player not performing or getting injured because that didn't really happen. That's not extraordinary. Um, and how does a, a, you know, a, a shutdown relief, relief staff, not just one, one, one player become essentially horrible almost overnight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 Maybe it's that the the elite manager sort of prevents that from that descent mm-hmm. from happening. There's mm-hmm. a talented team, and it just needs to play to its talent, and it would be good. And there it is. And you know, it's it's not just you know, it's it's <laughs> it's an extraordinary. It's if you have to, if you use something, there are lots of ways to measure divergence between probability distributions. Um, if you take one one probability distribution, you can divide it by another. This is a extreme shift. It's possibly one of the biggest extreme shifts that I've ever encountered in, in baseball over such a long period of time. It's been basically 30 games uh, post the All-Star break where the Yankees just have been extraordinarily bad, preceding by you know 65 games, 70 games before the All-Star, no, more than that, closer to 90 games before the All-Star break where they were extremely good. Yeah. So let's um, let's make this even harder and ask you to forecast. How many games are left in the season? Huh. Uh, maybe Maddie can throw it out. Um, it's got to be around 40, I would guess. Um, if the Yankees win half of them, I'd be impressed. Yeah, 40. They've got uh, 39 left. Um, okay. So this is something, you know, we asked for feedback from our, one of our guests last week, Ron Yurko, a listener, statistician, longtime supporter of the show. We asked him for some feedback, and we asked listeners to chime in as well. So we had some listeners drop us emails or hit us up on Twitter. Um, Dariano, Mike Dariano, one of our longtime listeners on Twitter, 
one of the things he suggested was more probabilistic forecasts, which I'm super sympathetic to. We, we have done those in the past. We probably ought to do more. Related to that, Yurko and whoever he was collecting feedback from said more scorekeeping of our forecasts. Combine those mm-hmm. and you probably start collecting a bunch of probabilistic forecasts and then run some calibration curves on them over time and learn something about our judgment. I also like that exercise odd because we are modelers. And I think one of the weaknesses of being a modeler is that you become too reluctant to exercise judgment outside the model, but you have to do that. And so let us build those muscles as well beyond just modeling muscles, our intuitive um, judgments. So let's come up with a question and make it, make it bind for you. A, probabil- a probabilistic forecast for what happens with the Yankees um, in the remaining 39 games of the year. Um, so what's an interesting question to you? And I want, I'm, well, I'm, I'm ultimately trying to get at whether you think they're going to turn this thing around. Well, I mean, uh, one simple question would be what's the, what's their, what's your over under on hitting a hundred. I mean, I would, I would take the under on that at this point, which is shocking considering where they were after 90 games. So just to be precise, they're 75 and 48 today. And so they have to win 25 of their remaining 39 games. Um, Okay. So let me just base rate that for you. So they've five, I mean, 538. Fan is forecasting 21 out of their 39. So a 548 win percentage to get them to 96. So fan would certainly agree with you. Um, so why don't we give a probability? Let's make Dariana suggests probabilities. I love that. I'm very sympathetic to that. Probability Yankees hit 100 games, 100 wins this year. Um, I guess one fact I would like to know is what is the strength of their schedule going out? Um, yeah, right. Usually they play an enormous number of games against the American League East. Yeah, right. Uh, they've the been East. playing them. They're going to play them again. Do they have anyone they can feast on coming up? Um, and I don't have to look at that. I don't know the schedule. No, got to work with. We don't have it. It's an unknown. Got to factor yeah, in. They got to they got to face Degrom tonight for the Mets. That doesn't look good to start with. Ah. Um, so uh, I, I would actually say their chance of making a hundred is probably less than twenty five percent, and maybe even as le- as low as fifteen percent. Oh my goodness! Okay. Um, well, you see, I, I should have written down my answer before collecting yours. I was going to say something like 30. I'm going to have to move towards you. I'm going to cheat and move towards you and go with 25. So you were going to go 15, 25. They have to play like 650 ball going out. Um, and while there's not that many games, it's not that, you know, there's a lot of variance in, in, the, in the percentage over, over 39 games. That's why I, I give them 15 to 20 to 25% chance. But yeah. That's pretty damn good ball. And uh, yeah. they've been playing such bad ball recently that it's, they'd have to snap back, regress to what's the, I mean, real question is what's the mean? I have to give Fangraphs a lot of credit because they hung on to that prior way deeper into the season than anyone else. Yeah. Um, they held on to the preseason prior of around 560, just extraordinarily hard. They barely budged it after 90 yeah. games. And I thought that was too, not a good call. And I think in general, that isn't a good call but they worked here. <laughs> right. There was a lot of screaming and gnashing of teeth on the show because of them holding on to that. So um, they are uh, they you know, who knows it's one team, one season, but it's nice that it goes in their way this time. And it's a good reminder to all of us on, on base rates. All right, odd. Let's leave quarter one there. We've still got three quarters to go. We're going to start with an interview tennis interview in Q2 and come back with open topics on Q3. Come back and join us. 
after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. We have a special interview, an extra interview segment this week with tennis warming up here, rolling into the final Grand Slam event. We thought it made sense to pull someone in who knows a lot more about tennis than us, even more than Eric Bradlow. We are delighted to welcome back to the show, Rick Macy. Rick is a longtime tennis coach. In fact, he's a storied, celebrated tennis coach. He's worked with many of the folks, household names in American tennis, Serena, Venus Williams, Andy Roddick, Maria Sharapova, Jennifer Capriati, Mary Pierce, many others. He is a member of the USPTA Hall of Fame, and uh, we are lucky to have some time with him. Rick, thanks for joining us. No, I'm glad to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun. Rick, a lot of folks talking about Serena right now. She's announced her retirement um, after the U.S. Open. Got to get your thoughts at the top on what Serena has meant to the game and why you think it is that she's been such a special tennis player. First off, great question. Uh, the retirement didn't really surprise me. You know, you got to be all in. And she's such a brutal competitor, probably the the best we've ever seen. And uh, but you got to be all in. So it didn't really surprise me um, that she announced retirement. I talked to her when I went out to the red carpet and the after party. And I could kind of tell, you know, that how much longer she was going to play. I think it was kind of, you know, let's see how it goes a little bit. But what she's done, you know, um, forget the tennis part. You know, the 23 Grand Slams or the seven, seven Wimbledons, six U.S. Open, six Australian, you know, three French, four, uh, I think, 16 Grand Slam doubles, four gold medals. How many weeks, number <laughs> one? The longevity of her career. Okay, we could go on and on. And she didn't even play all these tournaments because she had a kid mm-hmm. and, you know, she was injured. So, but what she's done to change the landscape uh, as a female athlete and a competitor, she wore her emotions on her sleeve. Some people love it. Some people might not like that. And just an amazing competitor. So I think, you know, what she has done in the longevity, uh, not only in my opinion, she's the best female tennis player of all time. Okay. I think she's the best female athlete of all time because she's checked every box in my Uh, opinion, you know, and I think her best is yet to come after retirement. That's a, that's a neat question. That's the kind of question that Adi would like to take up and argue is like, how can we compare levels of accomplishment across sports? Um, It's a, it's a, it's a long argument, but certainly she would have a a good one to make. I'd be hard pressed to figure out who's number two. Um, That's how dominant Serena is. I mean, really. I can't imagine, you know, coaching Serena and it, it raises the question about coaching these athletes at all. And I'm curious if you could reflect a little bit for us on, and this is maybe a tough question to handle about yourself, but why is it that these guys come to you? What is it that they look for from you and, and, and what are you offering that differentiates you from other coaches? Like what has your career been built on as a coach? Um. Well, first off, I think at the end of the day, everybody has to make a choice. You know, they don't, they shouldn't come to you just because before the Williamses, you know, came to me, I had Capriati. Okay. And she, at 12 years old, she won the national 18 hard court and clay court. Think about that. 
12 years old and she wins the national 18th. She probably retired a lot of people by beating all those older people, you know, and uh, that's a record that still stands today from 1988. And two years later, Jennifer was top 10 in the world. So from that, no one probably had a better blueprint for greatness than Rick Macy. And out of nowhere, I get the call from Richard Williams. He just wanted to meet me, take a look at his kids, so on and so forth. But to answer your question, you know, people come at first, maybe who you taught and stuff like that. But it's up for you to you to deliver the goods, you know, mm -hmm. and I think mentally and biomechanically and how I say it, why I say it, when to say it, how to deal with the parents. I tell people I should be in the Hall of Fame just for putting up with Richard for four years, you know. So, no, I'm just kidding. But it's 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 all that combined into one, you know, and then the personal touch. And, you know, I'm a little more genuine. I'm down to earth. But you got to know what you're talking about. You got to know how to build a game. And that's what I do. I see the ingredients. If I believe in it, I can put it in the oven. I can bake it. Then I put the icing on it. And I'm always looking at a bigger picture because mm -hmm. when I first saw Venus and Serena, okay, I didn't see it at first. And then when we start competing, okay, it's what I saw under the hood. Okay. Evaluating talent is all in the eye of the beholder. What I saw under the hood was a rage. There was a rage, a burning desire to get to the ball that I've never seen in my whole life. And I've had so many people you could imagine. And I haven't seen it to this day. Now, you can try hard. And you, that means you could still work at McDonald's or something just because you try hard. But then I start thinking 5'10", 150, 6 feet, 160. I start projecting, <laughs> you know, where this could go when yeah. I had Psalm at 9 and 10. And uh, it's in the movie. I said, Richard, come here. Let me tell you something. You got the next female, female Michael Jordan on your hands. And he mm -hmm. puts his arm around me. and He goes, no, brother, man, I got the next two. All right. <laughs> from that. Now, from that, from so, that. Rick, hold on. Let me ask you one clarifying question about that. Are you talking about seeing that in both of them? Or did you see it earlier in Venus because she was older? Or, or was it more in Serena because she actually has more of it? No. Uh, great question. I saw it in Venus uh, specifically because she was just better. As nine years old, Trina was like a prankster. She wasn't like mature <laughs> enough, but uh, she could do the splits. She was quick. She was fast. And when the bell rung, she went for the jugular. She was like a little pit bull. Okay. And so was Venus. But I projected because in the early nineties, if you were big and strong, you weren't, you know, you weren't that nimble. Mm -hmm. All right. So they could not only, in my opinion, be number one in the world. And I went on the record back then and said that they could transcend the game or mm -hmm. I wouldn't have taken that big financial risk and went all in no matter how long it took. But Serena wasn't as mature. So mm -hmm. it's a great lesson for any coach, parent or Rick Macy. You know, you don't judge the book by the cover. You know, mm -hmm. the cover could be amazing. The book bad, the cover amazing, the book bad. So you got to be real careful evaluating things. But I saw something I never saw before. They were bulletproof. And that mm -hmm. was baked in extra crispy before I got in there at age nine. <laughs> yeah, I just I, I'm taken by the, your your explanation about there was a rage to get the ball. Um, we're you know we we're an analytics show, um, and I want to know what that means and how how, how would I measure that? Um, and, and, I mean, it's, I can understand that they were incredibly athletic, and there were the as you point out the. 
they were they were fast and strong and large and tall at the same time, and I don't think we'd seen those things. But you you pointed first to this rage to get the ball. Are, are you sure you're not just sort of back? I mean, how do you? Doesn't every tennis player want to get the ball? I mean, that's kind of the, the whole point. So what no. do you what do you what are you seeing? Can you put that okay. into words? It's like everybody today when they talk about the most competitive guy in the NBA, they go to Jordan, then they go to Kobe. I mean, everybody's competitive. I just saw something that, like, there's no way they could get to the ball, and they tried so hard. They'll never get to the ball. And they, it was just all about the competition, and that's what I saw. And when you're that wired that deep, you're going to handle pressure better. I could just see it. And they had all these other boxes checked with athleticism, you know? So that's kind of what I'm talking about. Hey, listen, you can run super fast and super hard and try hard. They ran so hard, they almost fell down. And both of them did many times. But the wild card was Serena. And there's another thing that I did see. She had all the time in the world. Now, a lot of people didn't understand that when I said that in the early 90s. It's like she had so much time, it almost made her look sloppy or lackadaisical. But when you have all that time, It's an innate ability. Maybe Montana had it, Brady. Okay, things slow down in your mind. And that's what I saw in her. But I also saw this Compton street fight, this rage of a uh, just a brutal competitor. So I'm thinking, wow, she has the intensity there. That's never going to change. And she's very calm. And when those two things come together, that's when you become something very special. She just needed strokes and strategy and financial backing and the opportunity. So that's what I meant by the rage. Everybody has it. This was a different level. And I saw it in two little girls uh, from Compton. Um, and it was unique. It was something very, very unique. And I think they, even Serena's uh, demeanor has inspired people to compete like that, to almost say it's okay. And you saw that. You saw that look at the U.S. Open. I saw that look many times as a teenager. Trust me. Mm-hmm. I think Adi's putting his finger on uh, the just the, the one. This is a generally important issue in sports. I mean, identifying the competitiveness of an athlete on whether you want to draft them, recruit them, sign them is something that everyone realizes is very important, and yet it's hard to it's hard to ascertain and. And it would be interesting to know like what, you know, I, and we, I completely believe you, you're compelling, but if we're going to coach others to identify competitiveness at that level, what, what would you tell them? I get scouts that ask a question like, what do you, are there, are there questions you can ask them? Psychological questions you can ask them. It's like, I don't well, think so. But it's a great, it's a, it's a ubiquitous challenge in athlete evaluation in sports. And it'd be interesting to know if there were little cues that we could share. Can, with I, can I just elaborate on, on, on Kate's question? And you, you're pointing to, for example, the fact that Serena, maybe Serena and Venus, they seem to try just as hard in the balls that they just couldn't even get. And, and that might be something, would you think that that's, a, that that's something you could tell other coaches to look for? Um, that kind of obsessive desire to always get it, even, even on the, I mean, I, I mean, I see this in, in, in baseball sport, I know much better the athletes who will, tr- will will try to beat out every single ground ball, even the ones back to the pitcher from which they're out by 10 feet. Um, those are the ones who have something special. And, and maybe, and I'm just making that up. I mean, you're saying that that might actually be real. 
And that you no, should first off, that, that's great. You said the key word obsession. It was it was all about the ball. It was an innate thing. Okay. And, and you know, to be great at anything or very good, it's a package. But that was already inside. And on top of that, just amazing makeup speed, amazing quickness, and they were going to have size and strength. Okay. So a lot of the intangibles were there. But what I saw on the inside, it was all about the competition. So, yeah, listen, players can't wait to call out. I just told someone today, your favorite word is out. You know, <laughs> even if the ball, even if the ball is five feet out, run and get it. See, we run for every ball. That's the way I train people, you know, and the fences are out, you know, because if you can make the out ones, the in ones are going to be easier because someday you're going to be four feet off the court, uncomfortable, off balance. And if you've been there, done that, you're going to be comfortable and you might make that shot. Okay. So this is how I, I coach so many players. I do things a little bit different because I come from more of an athletic background. I just try, every coach has to do one thing make them the best competitors they can. And even though the Williams sisters and all these people I've had are, I make them even more competitive, you know, and that's the real, that's the most important thing. It's not just the biomechanics. I was going to ask exactly this question. You mentioned these two a number of minutes ago now, the, the, the mentality and the biomechanics. And I was going to ask you about the relative importance of those two things. And I'm sure it differs with different stages and with different athletes, but in general, as a coach at that level, what would you tell us about the role of the mental game relative to the biomechanics of the game? Well, first off, the mental part, every coach, everybody has to understand that's the last thing that develops because the brain can't even reason at 9, 10, 11 half the time. As I said, Venus was much more mature than Serena. I would tell Serena to run. She looked at me and go, why? <laughs> I said, well, you say you want to be number one, and she'll give me that look. I will be number one. Now, this is an 11-year-old, but I kind of like that. I like that attitude. I like it when they kind of get back in my face. I, want, I don't want a cupcake or a marshmallow. I want someone with a backbone. I don't want it every day because they can go <laughs> somewhere else. But, you know, I like a little bit of that, and she had that. So the mental part is huge. But that takes longer. Some people need the win to get a little more confidence. People need experience, you know, and then you mentally grow as an athlete. You hit your peak later. So that's the last thing. But I did see that in the girls early on, more in Venus than Serena. So that's huge. Now, the biomechanics. To me, that's the wild card. This has cost people millions. I don't mean hundreds of thousands millions of dollars because they got a funky grip or they got a crazy backswing. Okay. Um, I told them they should go back and sue whoever taught them in the beginning because the cards that you're dealt at a young age, a lot of times you're dealt with forever. It's hard to change muscle memory and to reprogram the reflexes when you get older. It's tough. I mean, I can do it. My partner, Dr. Brian Gordon has his PhD in biomechanics. He did his thesis on I mean, we can do it better than anybody, especially how I can explain this, but to correct that stuff. But I've seen it cost people enormous amount of money. So when you look at a fetter or you look at someone like that, the serve is optimal. The forehand is optimal. The backhand's high level. Then you got a great athlete, like who's ballet dancing. Then you got a person who's calm and very intense. So this is a package that makes greatness. 
Greatness in one or two things. It's a package, but a bad grip or stroke can cost people career. And I see it out there right now on both the men's and women's tour. And here's the wild card. When the fans are in the stands and there's more pressure, that's when you see that little hole in their game. Rick, is it the case that there's less room for individual differences in strokes in tennis than in some other sports? There's, to what extent is there a right way to swing the racket, a right way to swing a forehand? How much variation is there allowed? Okay. This is uh, one of my famous uh, point phrases. There's not a wrong way or right way. There's a better way. And it depends on the person. You know, if they can deliver the goods and hit the ball in front of them, whether the ball's coming 10 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour, okay, you might not want to change it. So what I'm trying to say is the strokes are a little bit different in the men's game and then in the women's game. If you look at the strokes on the men's side, and I did something on this 10 years ago and really revolutionized, you know, the ATP forehand or the ATP backhand where their strokes are shorter, the racket goes faster, the racket's to the outside. A lot of people aren't going to stand this. The racket flips. But if you look how a lot of the men hit it, I'm generalizing, opposed to women, the stroke's shorter and faster, and it's all based on the kinetic chain coming from the ground up, where the, mm. the women, as they grow up, they're littler. Maybe they don't have as much power. And they make bigger swings, generally. And so it's not optimal to swing around the body. So mm. what I'm trying to say is, uh, you want to at least be in the neighborhood. <laughs> you know, if you're in the neighborhood, okay, you still have a shot. But mm-hmm. even uh, even I, I talked a month ago to Corey Goff, Coco's dad, and, uh, you know, her serves a weapon, but it's a liability. Her forehand can be a weapon, but it's a liability. There's a few things biomechanically, and I just did an article on this about her game. So for her to dominate, if that could ever be, corrected, which I think it will someday. Um, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking at the highest level, even the best of the best have little holes in their game that cost them when there's pressure. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love Alcaraz. Every box is checked, you know, from A to Z. So that's why I've kind of went on a limb and said he's kind of like Agassi, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer all wrapped in one. Oh my goodness gracious. Well, you, you jumped to my next question because I, I wanted to ask you if there were some young up and comers that we should be paying attention to based on your assessment, and I'm not sure how much freedom you have to speak about your clients or non-clients, but Alcaraz is one who even I have heard about. I've heard friends and friends, kids and tennis aficionados talk about this guy taking the world by storm this year. So what is it about his game that makes him so special? Yeah, no, I've done a lot of interviews of article and I kind of annoyed at him. I probably put pressure on the guy, but listen, first off, he's the, fastest guy his makeup speed i mean he's like you know batman on steroids i mean this guy just flies so what that means is on a day when you're nervous you can hang in there and just scrap around and get the w you know just because he has incredible speed and Mm -hmm. people need to understand that tennis has changed a lot movement's a premium unless you're like you know isner or pelka and you can just bomb your way to a tiebreaker so um, his foot speed, incredible. That's number one. He looks like he's born to do this. He's a showman and he's a shot maker. Okay. So he looks like he's just born to do this. Then the technical part, 
The forehand and backhand are kind of similar to Agassi, except a little bigger. Very compact, very short, very explosive. So there's no speed bump in that. Then mm-hmm. the wild card, besides his mind, which is the most important, he's not going undefeated. He might not win any grant. He might not win the U.S. Open, but he'll definitely be in double figures uh, when this is all said and done. And I think he can go and become one of the greatest players of all time. But the wild card, he has this drop shot from outer space. I mean, he has so much disguise. He not only puts you in the freezer, you don't even run. You don't even run. You're paralyzed. So you got to play defense when he's ready to hit it. And then he just pulls the trigger and you're like stunned. I tell everybody he's transcending the way the game's even being taught by Uh coaches and parents. Now you see everybody drop shot more. Where before, if you drop shot and miss it, you're going, you idiot, why'd you do that? You know, but if you make it, hey, great shot. You got to, you know, so people have kind of, they're looking at how he's using it. And I even saw it at the French. Everybody was drop shotting a lot more on the men's and women's tours. But you got to understand, he has touch and feel. He's checked every box and he created a few more. He's a real deal and he loves the battle. And that's what I love about it. So what, how, how fully baked? He's 18 years old. Is that right? I mean, I have he just turned 19, I think, three months ago. Okay, so 19. How fully baked, how sure can you be of a person's trajectory these days at 19 in professional tennis? Well, I don't, I don't think you can, but I have a little different feel, and I've done this for so long. You know, listen, you don't know about injuries. Someone mm-hmm. could check out. You get mm-hmm. a girlfriend, the thing blows up. You know, many things can just de- derail this. All right. So that's, we don't know about that, but I'm just looking at this thing. Like I've looked, I've looked at Joker. I knew Fed when he was 18, all these guys. I've just never seen anything like this. This is a generational player. Wow. I wouldn't go out and say that if I thought there was even one speed bump, like there's little hiccups in a lot of people's games. Okay. Yeah. Like Murray or even Agassi, you know, um, Nothing against any of those guys. They're all amazing. And right. I know I'm talking, when you talk, someone can be amazing or iconic or legendary, and they haven't done anything, kind of <laughs> like I did with Venus and Serena. I said they're where they were going to be, and they haven't even won a trophy. You know, people don't like that, and I get it. But I'm just saying, uh, the guy's the real deal. And uh, I've just never seen anything like it the last 30 years. Now, this is tricky, because in men's tennis, there's such physicality, you know, you can lose six and six to oh, and Pelka because he's serving bombs, you right. know, but let's face it, Alcarez is a better tennis player, but the better tennis player doesn't win always, you know, in men's tennis because it's so physical. He's mm-hmm. not going to be able to mail it in, but give him a few years. He's going to be w- winning grand slams. I'm going to come back on your show and we'll pull this. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, listen, we're just a couple of weeks from the U.S. Open. Give us somebody on the women's side that you think may not have as much attention, or even someone who does have attention that maybe the layperson doesn't know. Who should we be looking out for? Who's someone whose game you like on the women's side? Well, the women's the women's side is so wide open with Ash Barty retiring. Okay, mm-hmm. and you know now Iga, who won like 35 matches in a row, the girl from Poland. She's lost a few times, so she's not like on automatic pilot, like I can beat anybody anytime. So that kind of opens it up a little bit more. This thing is so wide open. The person who won Wimbledon, people never heard of her. 
I mean, you're getting all these first time winners. Last year, a qualifier won it, you know, mm-hmm. on a Kanye. So, you know, who would I, okay, who would I like to see win it? Uh, it would be Coco Golf, you know, and the reason why I say that, she's an Olympic sprinter with a racket in her hand. Okay, there's a few little holes in her game. Uh, she just finished school, so she can now concentrate totally on tennis. People got to understand education's important to a lot of these kids and parents. Now that she's able to go full in, and when that happened, she started doing better the last four months. Um, she could she could win this thing, and uh, even if she doesn't, she's going to win many Grand Slams. And in my opinion, she's uh, the next great American. And if she can clean up a few things biomechanically, uh, she could dominate. It could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's exciting. It's gotten, we've been, we've been pulling for her for a little while now, right? She was going to be the next big thing for a little while since she's a little bitty girl. And it's nice to hear that you think that she may be coming into that now. And there may be some structural changes in her life that make that possible. Well, you know um, what? Let me just, let me add to that. Cause you've been pulling for her for a while. That's because the other ones were probably playing the 14 and unders and the 16th. She's out there 15 years old. She's jumping in with people winning grand slams. Right. So, right. but all, all those yesterdays made her what she is today. All that failure is now bringing success. All okay. those crying nights is now bringing the smiles. And this is what people have to understand. You got to fail to succeed because this is a journey and it's made her more bulletproof. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. All right. Well, listen, Rick, we will let you go. Thank you for taking time out of your afternoon to visit with us. Terrifically interesting and a real privilege to get a chance to chat with you. No, it's nice being with you and we'll do it again anytime. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. Rick Macy, legendary tennis coach, coming to us, talking about U.S. Open, talking about Serena Williams going into her last tournament and giving us some young tennis players to keep our eyes open, keep our eyes on in the U.S. Open and beyond. That has been another quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to third quarter. Still Cade Massey and Audie Weiner carrying the show today. Eric and Shane will be back. We've got an open segment, open topic segment here, short one in advance of a longish interview in Q4 with Paul Oyer, talk economics of sports, fun conversation there at the end of the show. Q3, you, you guys can jump into these shows if you'd like, and we'd love it when you do. You can hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall is our handle there. Also slide into our DMs. Maddie D loves to hear from you that way. You can also drop us an email. We have a mailbag. Moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. Last week, we had Ron Yurko, friend of the show, statistician on. And one of the things we did with them was ask for some feedback on the show after eight and a half years and two and a half years of pandemic. What might we need to know to improve things? We asked you listeners, and we're always up, up for it from you listeners. Had a few notes from here and there. I want to read one suggestion from Andrew Sternid. Stern, Andrew, apologies if I'm getting that last name wrong, but Andrew wrote, said he's a longtime listener. I'm just going to read you the first paragraph. He says, if you remember, Yurko said uh, less football. He didn't agree, but some of the people he got feedback from said less football, more other sports. Uh, And here's a listener, Andrew, who says, longtime listener, enjoy the show. 
Today I write, inspired by your segment with Ron this week, I've often wished you guys would have a volleyball segment with my deep bias toward women's volleyball, mainly collegiate. Yes, a bit niche, but in my view, a superior women's team sport to basketball is very much a growing game. Big 10 has recently taken over Pac-10 as the best conference. Teams like Nebraska have sold out every match, 8,000 plus for years and years. Many others draw big crowds in the Big 10. So I just want to say I happen to know that there is a serious analytics community around volleyball and there are full-time staffers on some of these collegiate teams. And so I think this is an outstanding suggestion that we will definitely take Andrew up. We're going to act on that in the near future, Andrew, and the fall season is on us. And it's not just the Big Ten here in Austin, Texas. They've got a pretty good pretty good volleyball team as well and an exciting environment. Some people think it's the best sporting environment in Austin is women's volleyball in Gregory gym. So Andrew, thanks for that note. Adi, we um, are one week away. Did you know, I mean, we're in week zero week one college football is next weekend. We're going to have our annual college football preview show. We started indulging that a few years ago all college football all the time. We've got a lineup of guests, some of our favorites, some of our longtime guests are going to join us to talk college football. And then next week, the week after, rather, the first week of September, we're going to do our NFL preview show. Same setup, dedicated to the NFL, have guests from around the sport drop in the show and talk with us about the season. So we've got that coming up. I'm curious, have you, is there any football on your mind right now? I know it's hard to clear the Yankees. Well, we may not have any space. No, no. Okay, so football is interesting. As you pointed out last week's show, I've learned so much more about football that I can't even imagine uh, the distance that I've traveled. Uh, college football, far less, interestingly, because I just can't watch it because of my Shabbos or Shabbat observances. I didn't really get to see it, see the sport. And being from the Northeast, it was never that much of a, uh, of a, of a, of a kind of social tradition around college football. And right. while I used to go to the football games when I was an undergraduate at Yale, I, I would sit in the stands and do math problems more typically than anything oh, else. And so, and so in, in complete geekness, I, I understand. Um, but I've, I've, I've done a lot of forecasting with college football, and that's fascinating. I build power models. And, and most specifically, and, and some of the research I've been doing is on their recruiting rankings and their prospects in the, in the NFL. And there's such great data on, on a lot of things related to college football. And that always is interesting. And, and one day we'll get around to our concentration of, uh, of talent uh, paper. Uh, maybe yep. we'll be moving forward on that th- this year. But I don't really have any forecast to say. And I'm not, I guess I'm not that, um, I mean, on the college football side of things, um, you know, I kind of keep an eye a little bit out on Penn. I would like them to win the Ivy League championship, I suppose. Um, that would be nice. Um, but I'm much more interested in the, in the NFL. And, of course, every season begins with a little hopefulness for my Jets I think that's probably already dispelled. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough, they're on a tough, tough go. Um, and again, with the quarterback, they're not out of the woods on the quarterback looking for quarterbacks. And so um, that, that's going to be um, a, a little bit of a go yet. You can pull for the Eagles. People are excited about the Eagles. I do. I, I, they are definitely my adopted uh, favorite team from my home, from our, my current town. So definitely you, all in on the Eagles. You know that I want to, I want to talk a little bit of college before we jump to pro. We're going to have time to get into the pro season. Let me give you a, just one quick exercise. We haven't yet run our sim. So we'll talk about our full forecast next week, but we massive everybody does have their power rankings ready and we're running them through unabated. You can run, you can run sims on the unabated. You can't run college football sims. We can run pro football sims on unabated, but we're going to have our rankings up through unabated, but 
what I've done is I've compared Massey Peabody to the other quant systems, in particular, Bill Connolly's S&P Plus and ESPN's FPI. And I've compared all those quant systems to the AP poll, just to get a sense of where the kind of intuitive judgments are versus where the models are and whether there are teams that kind of stand out. So just blending the three quant systems and then comparing that to the AP poll to get some sense of where the models are saying these teams, you know, may, may short these teams that the polls think are going to be good, or maybe these teams are going to be better than the polls. And the ones that really jump out, Adi, are the team that we, we most differ on is let's see who we most think is going to be better. So the, the quant models really like Mississippi state compared to what AP poll, you have to go into others receiving votes. If you do that, Mississippi state comes in about number 35 where the blend of Massey Peabody, S&P plus and FPI comes in at 15. And one of the things that happens there is that the polls, they're not so much telling you who they think is going to be best. They're kind of also forecasting what the final rankings are going to be. And Mississippi State plays in the SEC West. And so even if they have a very strong team, they're likely to take a lot of losses because they play this ridiculous schedule. The power rankings, what we're doing is just saying, which is the best team? And so there's a that, that's probably the reason for that kind of discrepancy. Other teams kind of in that neighborhood that models think are going to be better than the polls, there are four kind of clumped together, Tennessee and Texas, both. I'm happy to say that about Texas. Uh, Penn State and Auburn. Those are the next four behind that at Mississippi State. Tennessee, Texas, Penn State, and Auburn, all 16, 17 spots above what the AP poll says. I mean, Tennessee and Texas, the blend, the quant blend on Tennessee and Texas have them coming in ninth and 10th, which is really high. When Rufus, Rufus comes in, he said, well, we have them the highest. I think we have them something like, let's see what we have. We have Tennessee seventh and Rufus is all like shy about it basically, but that's that they've got, they've got a lot of returning talent and um, they've done a phenomenal job recruiting and transferring players in. So we'll see, they play a tough schedule in the sec, but we'll see. You know, tell me a little bit about the distribution of those power ranks. How different is a forecast of 15 from a forecast of 30? And how does that compare to say the difference between the forecast of two and a forecast of nine? In other Good. words, I, I mean, I think that there's a huge, I mean, you don't have to change your, your, your power ranking that much and move around a lot of ranks when it comes to the fat part of that. The, the terrific. No, it's a terrific question. I'm just looking at the blend here. This is a blend of the three quant systems. 15 comes in at plus 13. So I expect mm-hmm. to win 13 points against an average team on a neutral field, average uh, uh, FBS team. And then if you drop down to 30, the 30th best team, you only drop three points plus 10. So, yeah, so- a, lot, a lot smashed in there. Now contrast that with going up from, yeah. 10, from 10 to one. So you're going further. I mean, you're, you're not going as far, but you go all the way to plus 30. You got a, you got a 17 point differential going up. You've only got a three yeah. going up 10 spots, only a three point differential dropping down 20 spots. So your intuition is right. So I'm really much more curious if there's really debate up on, uh, on number one. Is there, is there much debate these days? Yeah. And what are the early, who's, who's everyone say is number one? Okay, this is a fair point. Um, that it's consensus top three: Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. Um, was mm-hmm. the, the polls 
and both FPI and S&P Plus have Alabama number one. We have Georgia number one, but we had Alabama number two. And so there's consensus top three and then a big drop off. Clemson is surprisingly strong across the board in the quant system and the AP system. And so they're really consensus four. And then there's a collection of teams that are, and, and Clemson is significantly behind those top three. And then there's another drop to a collection of teams that are kind of consensus next tranche, Notre Dame, Michigan, Oklahoma, A&M. So then I'd say the second four has a fair bit of consensus in there. And then there's just a morass of teams in the next, you know, 20, 25 spots. Whatever happened to the California and the Florida teams that were so great years ago? Which California teams do you have in mind? USC and UCLA? USC. Yeah. Uh, great teams. They're not anymore, huh? Well, this is a fascinating year for USC. One of the real themes in the season is going to be USC because Lincoln Riley is out there. First-year coach moved. We had these unbelievable coaching moves from one high-level program to another, his being one of the highest profile. And he took his quarterback with him. He took a receiver with him. He recruited another receiver, the best in the country, from Pittsburgh. Um, People are really excited to see what USC can do. They probably don't have any defense. Lincoln Riley has made the playoff before without any defense. So there's some real potential there. It's going to be super interesting to see. UCLA may be as good this year. They've been building up slowly the last few years. Chip Kelly out there seeing if he can get it going again. Um, So they're more interesting this year than they have been for a while. Florida, the most interesting team out of Florida is probably Miami. Again, uh, been coming, trying to get it going for a little while. They've got a new coach, Mario Cristobal, going back home where he played. Everyone thinks he's the perfect coach for that situation. He moved down to, from Oregon, which was a great situation, but Miami was probably the only place I could get him. And um, everyone thinks he's going to make it happen. Now, whether he can do it this year, doubtful, but they'll make a little progress, and then people are really expecting bigger things from them soon. They're also a team that is probably most intensively pl- pushing the boundaries on NIL and doing whatever they can to bring in some players. They've had some big recruiting wins. Interesting observation real quick here at the very end, Adi. We have found in our analysis that this year's signing class, which should be the youngest player, they're the youngest players, is disproportionately influential in predicting this year's performance. Like relative to last year's, two years ago, three years ago, you'd think like the older classes would be more diagnostic because they have this seniority and they'll be playing. There seems to be a signal in this year's class. And so it's something to pay attention to. It's like a little, little bump in your, in your models, teams, schools that are signing really well, those guys know something, they know something's going on. And that bodes well for people like Miami, Tennessee, who are kind of signing above their quality. Okay. That was a quick Q3. That's what we can do. We got more college football coming up next week. We got more pro football coming up after that. We've got an interview on the economics of sports coming up in Q4. Come back and join us. After the break, you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now, fourth quarter, our traditional interview segment over the last two and a half years. We'll see how that changes in the upcoming weeks and months, but we're still in that model for the time being. And we are delighted to welcome onto the show this week for the first time, Paul Oyer. Paul is an economist, labor economist. He is the Mary and Rankin Van Anda Entrepreneurial Professor out at Stanford. He's a senior associate dean for academic affairs, so he's helping run the place as well. He has helped run important journals over the years, and he has just published a new book 
The book is called An Economist Goes to the Game, How to Throw Away $580 Million and Other Surprising Insights from the Economics of Sport. We're glad for the chance to talk to you, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. Absolutely. We, um, we, we've, we've seen your book talked about, and we had a chance to read some of it before today. Um, and we want to dive into the book, but we also want, just want to talk about the state of the world with you. You're a sports fan and a serious economist, and we are um, statisticians and social scientists who dabble in economics. And every now and then we come across stuff where we really think we could probably benefit from an economic lens. So we're looking forward to kicking these things around with you. Paul, tell us to begin with, uh, where did the book come from? This is, I mean, you, you deign dabble in sports, Paul, after the illustrious career you've had. What's going on? Well, I've been watching and playing sports my whole life. And um, really, the book comes from the fact that I am a big believer that economics is everywhere and that that's an underappreciated thing and that it can explain a lot of what's going on in life, in everyday life. I actually wrote an earlier book uh, kind of on the same theme that was applying economics to online dating. And this time I decided to go to a different uh, interest of mine, which was sports. And I started out actually, this was uh, the book started working with my son where we share a lot of sports interests and he was an English major and helped me with a lot of the research and writing in the early parts of the book. And it just seemed like a really good way help people to understand the world of economics in a way that would be less painful than some of the ways we use it. <laughs> okay, so hold on. You're saying that the motivation, it's a little bit like I, what Adi says about sports statistics. He's it's like, he, yeah, he's interested in sports, but really he uses sports data sets and sports problems to help people understand statistics better and get more fluent in statistics. You're saying something similar about economics. You're trying to help people understand economics as Interesting, fun, helps explain the world. That's the chief motivation. Yeah, that's definitely the chief motivation. And both in statistics and in economics, if you go to a top under any undergraduate university and look at what people are writing their theses on, you know, people are really interested. Students are really interested in marrying their interests, their passions to their intellectual pursuits. And, you know, usually not the ones who are going on to get PhDs, but, um, really smart students want to apply this to something they care about. So Adi, I'm sure um, to the degree you see any undergrads, you see a lot who are writing statistics papers about sports and the same is true in economics. Well, one of the uh, points that I make when I teach my students, particularly young ones, is that it's hard to motivate someone to learn something if they don't understand why. Um, So the phrase that we like to use uh, is what's the problem? What's the problem you're trying to solve? And if you're trying to teach data analysis, you got to know what the problem is. Otherwise, it seems like a, it's a, an unmotivated task. And when we try to teach business and anything else in, in psychology or even economics, the, the undergrad just don't know anything, right? So they don't know any context. And so it's hard to motivate the study, study of a subject because you have to first tell them uh, what's the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, Paul, when it, came to, when it came to putting the book together, uh, what do you think is one of the insights from the book that would most surprise people or that people might not have thought about before? You've got a number of these in the book, but when you think about it at a high level, what's one of the hooks that you would throw out there as a way to grab people? Um, I'll tell you two and you tell me which one you want to focus on. <laughs> the one the, there's a, 
the the idea in chapter one is when you're a kid, should you focus on your sports career? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, one of the things that it took me a while to really see was that that just depends a lot. And so for most people, you shouldn't focus on your sports career for the sake of making money as an athlete later on. But there are some exceptions. And I use Kevin Durant as a really good one. If you're six feet eight when you're 13 years old (laughs) and you're not on and you're from a background where you're not on track to, you know, necessarily have a great labor market experience. Otherwise, sports looks like a really good investment at that point. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty small group of people, though. Mm-hmm. Um, the other insight that that the other one, the other example that sort of jumps out as a was one of my favorites is why Korean women are dominate golf. And it's all about economics. Like you look at that and you're like, what? Like if you think about it about Korea, it's the most crowded, it's one of the most crowded, crowded countries or cities. Certainly Seoul is one of the most crowded cities in the world. There's no room. If you just plop down the area of a golf course in the middle of Seoul, it would outline ten uh, the uh, an area where 10,000 people live, right? So, and then these people just become amazing golfers, but only the women. And uh, so I think economics can explain both of those phenomena. Well, tell us a little bit more about the second one, because I think that's, that's it, it sounds like kind of a classic econ problem, and it's not obvious to the outsider what the solution is. Yeah, so it's really a common, it's like the perfect storm of economic factors. It is a combination of a country where they have a history of, um, you know, they have a, a culture around which kids are very hardworking, is that parents are very demanding of their children. Uh, it's a culture where they're really good at delaying gratification, one of the highest savings rates in the world. Um, and then um, the, the thing that really makes it interesting is that the, all of these incentives are very focused on men because it also has the highest gender pay gap of any developed country in the world. So if you're, a, if you're a Korean girl, like being a lawyer or a high powered executive, that doesn't look like, <laughs> that's not the career you're looking down. You know, that's, that's an unlikely outcome. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to be spending hours and hours focusing on some skill as a kid, turns out golf is, you could do a lot worse than spending your time learning to play golf. And then on top of that, you get network effects, which you know, is economics, it's sociology, it's everything. So Siri Pak, I'm sorry if I said her name wrong, kind of set the stage for women um, in Korea about 25 years ago now. Mm -hmm. And if you just look at some of the numbers since then, it's incredible. During one 10-year period, South Korean women won more than half of the major championships played. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you you could norm that for country size to really get a sense of how unusual, how much outperformance there really is there. Um, I I developed an index for this. It's hard to do it. Just you guys, you guys, um, you know, you, you all, especially Adi as the, as the professional statistician could, could do a better job of this than I did, but I created an index of how dominant you are relative to your country size in sports. And Korea is such a big country that it doesn't quite measure as well on that. So some of these things don't like the the East African East African marathoners are the most dominant group of athletes in the world. And because Kenya is a pretty big country, it doesn't rank that high. 
The number one ranking per capita country by almost any measure athletically, by the way, is Liechtenstein. But that's an anomaly of the fact that it has 37,000 people and it's sitting in the, next to a ski slope. So they, every five or so years, crank out a world-class skier. Right. Yeah, you crank that denominator down low enough and you'll get some, you'll get some strange things. Adi was going to jump in with so something. I just wanted to uh, ask a question. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed about um, – you know, sports is the contagiousness of it. So there's a classic story of a of a high school in, I'll just say, Texas, from lack of another state, that never sent anyone to the pros, um, and then they did, or or a top division one school, a small place, and all of a sudden, the next five years, they sent five. Um, it was almost as if, you know, if you'd work out the mathematics of that, you'd have to recognize that something is fundamentally different, and what is different was the mindset. They never thought they could do that, and so they did. And what level do you think something like the South Korean uh, tendency to be good at golf is, you know, somebody did it and then everyone recognized, hey, let's try that. That's doable. And then the next thing you know, it just was a focus. Yeah. So I think that's part of that story. I think even a better example of what you just said is um, Czech women tennis players. They really they aren't as dominant as the Korean women golfers, but Czech women tennis players really punch above their weight. And I think it comes down to two things. So to the degree that Siri Pak really led to a revolution in golf in Korea, that was actually small compared to the revolution in tennis led by Martina Navratilova. Mm -hmm. Like every Czech woman still talks about what an influence she was. Although there's a much longer history of tennis in the Czech Republic than there is golf in Korea, but still the effect of Martina Navratilova. But the other reason why I think the tennis example is better is getting very much of the idea you're saying of the contagion. Golf, there's contagion because kids play each other and they learn from one another or whatever. But tennis, unlike golf, you actually play against each other, right? So what makes makes that contagion, I think in the book, I say something along the lines of one of the things that makes Czech girls so good at tennis is other Czech girls, right? So the, and, and there's some quotes in the book where they talk, about the local clubs and how the competitive level. So it's exactly the dynamic you just said. Once these things become self-fulfilling prophecies. Now, you know, in the book, I often stop and say, well, what does this have to do with things other than sports? Because in all the principles in the books, with one or two exceptions, apply in economics and a lot of other places. And, Mm -hmm. And what you just described, Adi, is how Silicon Valley works, right? It's that contagion around the software engineers are teach each other things. And that leads the firms to come in and set up their software firms in Silicon Valley, which leads the software engineers to locate there. It's exactly the same as the Czech tennis players. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, I think that part of the book is called something like, uh, you know, um, Martina Navratilova is the Hewlett and Packard of, of, Mm -hmm. uh, of women's tennis. Right. Right. I want to note a couple of other places in the book just um, that jumped out to me, and then we can wander off away from the book in a minute. But I, I thought that the chapter on athlete pay kind of not surprising, given your background was I thought you were just just you know, crushing the explanation for something that often baffles the lay fan. Why is it that the pay has done what it's done, especially over the last 60 or 70 years? I thought it was super illuminating and would be a recommended read to, to kind of anybody. You also talk about, you know, what about guarantees? Why is it that Mahomes contract isn't guaranteed where Trout's is? 
And uh, you talk a little bit about the strikes and the bargaining. In fact, the subtitle of the book comes from that chapter because you're about losing $580 million. But a lot of great labor economics there that I think make plain. This is more from the sports fans perspective. Like, let me understand the world a little bit better when I use this economic lens. The other place where I thought really shines in that way is on stadiums and more than stadiums, the uh, big events like Olympics. Like, why do municipalities make these bids and lose so much money? And I thought you did a real nice job of you lay out the case for this is a disaster. You say rarely do economists have such consensus on on how bad an investment this is. And we have it here. This is a disaster. And then you start unpacking the reasons for why that might be. And I liked the fact that you at least entertain the possibility that it's utility because it is every economist's favorite explanation for seeming, you know, irrational behavior. But you dismiss that based on a study about the London Olympics, which we could go further into that, but whatever. But then I really liked you. You kind of went into kind of the, in some sense, the ugly side of sports agency and corruption. And it's really an incentive problem in many ways for the decision makers who were behind some of those things. But I thought those two chapters were, Great examples of bringing economic tools to help explain what might seem like puzzles in the sports world, big, important, expensive puzzles to to otherwise naive uh, fans. I appreciate that. The only thing I would add on the stadium side is the London Olympics thing helps get at the utility. But I think the better argument for why utility can't explain the um, Olympic, the need to build stadiums in the Olympics is that the every the voters now turn down these public funding referendums, pretty right. much everyone. except yeah. in Texas where <laughs> we have time. Crazy. Hey, we got, we got all kinds of crazy down here. That's just one that sports football crazy is just one of them. Um, Paul, uh, I, I, that's, it's neat that it's evolved that way. I mean, and this is something that comes up in the book a number of times, these kind of learning over time, you see more, uh, you see improvement. That's one of the examples. It's less compelling to me though, when it comes to the sports teams being kind of held up by the owners, because now we're talking about the utility of having always been an Indianapolis Colts fan, and then they up and moved to Baltimore. And that's, that, that, that's got to be a stronger um, source of utility than whether, you know, my hometown hosted the Olympic Games or whatever. So that, I think, is a little trickier to get at. But you don't need it because there's just this bargaining and, and there's a holdup and then you've got the agency problem. You don't need that explanation, but I suspect it's in there somewhere. It could be, but again, you could make the people who are benefit. You could do a better job of forcing the people who are getting extracting that utility to pay the costs, rather than have the taxpayers, some of many of whom don't care about the cults, mm-hmm. pay the cults, mm-hmm. right? That's that's the issue. If you let the market sort it out, it would do a better job of 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 having the people who benefit pay the costs rather than spreading it to their neighbors who don't care. Mm-hmm. You, you're talking about different ways like, to talk about the mechanisms that what would that look like? And have we seen anything like it? Well, if we just say to the owners, you have to charge ticket prices that, to justify building the stadium. And, you know, um, and if you don't, you know, and then the ticket prices are being borne by the people who can afford it. So if you look, for example, here in um, the Bay Area, we just I mean, there's no there's no appetite for public funding of anything sports oriented in the Bay area and hasn't been for some time. So, you know, the chase center, which is where the warriors play now completely public funded. And, you know, the people who people pay a lot for those tickets Mm -hmm. and the people who aren't interested in the warriors don't. 
Mm -hmm. Or the people who are interested in the Warriors and don't have the money watch on TV instead of paying for the ticket. Oh, did you you said you said the Warrior Stadium was completely public funded? Did you mean? Did you... I meant. Thank you. Yes, I meant zero public funding. It's completely mm -hmm. private funded. Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, one other little bit that jumped out to me that I hadn't heard, and I think it's really interesting, and it'd be nice to hear you explain this. You talk about in Singapore, there's a regulation for citizens who want to go gamble. They want to enter a casino and, and play whatever. They have to pay a fee to walk in the door. It, and you said it's $110 US approximately. Can you talk about what that's all about? Like it's a really interesting mechanism and um, why you think that's a, that makes sense given the, the gambling domain. Yeah, so gambling, gambling as an economist, I'm pretty much okay with legalized gambling because for 98 or 99% of the population, it's strictly utility, right? If, if you enjoy it, even though you expect to lose, you know, most people know they're going to lose or can afford to lose and, and it's fine. So the real thing you worry about is that one or 2% of people who have a problem, problem gamblers. And, you know, we've seen in the United States, the problem with making laws based on just a few people's, um, addiction problems during prohibition and during drug wars and so forth. So it makes sense to free it up from an economist perspective. But then what do you do? How do you keep those one or two percent from wasting their families, um, you know, rent check on gambling? And Singapore hasn't. So what Singapore does is it says, look, you can go gamble if you want, but you got to pay this big entry fee. Mm -hmm. And so if you can't afford that entry fee or if you are forced to think through your night at the at the casino, I think that's a big impediment that's going to keep a lot of the of the locals away. Now, mind you, they don't charge foreigners that same fee because they, right. <laughs> they don't care. Right. If I go waste my rent. They're check. probably subsidizing that. Are you kidding me? Yeah, well, actually, that's that's true. I mean, casinos subsidize. Uh, through yeah. all the little discounts yeah. and programs, promotions they run, which is which which makes the case for you, right? So this is the opposite of subsidies. Now they they then ruined to the extent that you thought this was good policy, Singapore kind of ruined it by then letting um, a couple of the big uh, big local casinos, I think through lobbying efforts, uh, open online casinos available to anybody. Mm -hmm. at, you know, so that barrier was taken away. So I don't know from a policy perspective whether the fees are still there or even, and if they are, they don't matter because people would just gamble online instead. But yeah, I mean, putting up front some sort of barrier to entry to keep out that is correlated with this with this problem gambler or this problem yeah. area, that's the kind of thing, you know, as an economist, we're always looking for those things, those those signals you can ask people to pay mm -hmm. that will help separate one group from another in a way that leads to a more efficient outcome. Right. Can I ask you, Paul, though, um, I read that chapter um, and I, I I was interested in the in the in the observation. But how do you know that works? I mean, is there an experiment? Do we have another Singapore where they didn't do this or I mean, I'm. It sounds like a great talking point, but does it work? That's a great point. No, that's fair. I I've not seen a good study of whether it works or not. This is a case of um, economic concepts, not empirical that's economic right. studies with careful uh, empirical design. That's a very fair point. So, so, 
I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, unfortunately, I've had you know personal experience with people who uh, who ruined their lives with gambling. Um, and one, and, and 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 I don't want to reason from an anecdote, but one of the one of the difficulties with gambling is people have this misconceived vision that they can beat the odds. Well, this um, is, Adi, but this is one thing I like about this. There's no uncertainty associated with that fee when you walk in the door. You can't. You can't. Right. So that, that might work. I'm not saying that it doesn't. I'm just saying that it that how do I know it? Um, yeah. And yeah. and the thing is, is that if you really genuinely think you're good, then you think you're worth the hundred dollar fee. Um, and this is I mean, there are I mean, it's hard to know because obviously there are lots of reasons why people do very dumb things. Some of them is that they have a misguided belief of their own abilities. Another is they just love it so much. I mean, the gambling has this this uh, this uh, endorphin kick that, you know, you can, I see people sitting at the slot machines and nobody can possibly think they can beat those. Yet they sit there all day long thinking they're, that this is going to change their life. Um, so, you know, who knows what it is? But but I've actually written some articles on chance and, and skill in gambling. And um, I actually wrote a, a, an article on, on sports gambling, not sports gambling, fantasy, fantasy betting, yeah. which many people think is um, – is uh, it's a it's a, it's a difficult one, but the people who are good at this win. Yet people, everybody thinks they can beat the experts, but they really can't. It's kind of like a, a gap between what you're capable of um, and what you think of yourself and what's really possible out there, and that creates the addiction. No one's going to gamble. I wouldn't take a uh, take a, a game against uh, Roger Federer in tennis. It's just going to cost me, you know, well, I don't give a crap. I mean, he's not, I'm never going to beat him because um, I know he's so much better than me. But when it comes to gambling, there are lots of people who are misguided sense of what they can do. And that's, I think, where the trouble lies. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, getting the getting a policy right on gambling is something where economic, where neoclassical economics can be helpful. But there's so much non-rational behavior that it's certainly not the be- it's not the end of the story. Um, it was a great chapter. I want to kick in one one other fact: the professionals in horse racing get a kickback on the the track take. It's mm-hmm. and it's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so while the while the us loves might might pay ten percent or twenty percent off the top in the paramutual, they get most of that money back in in rebate if they if gamble a certain amount. It's amazing. Why and why is that? Just to get them to come, they take a. They, well, it just it in, increases the take. I mean, they still get a fraction of their money, just not twenty percent, maybe three or four percent. Yeah, so that's I didn't know that. Thanks for pointing that out. It's a great example. I'll use in a different context. That's just that's second degree price discrimination, right? That's volume. That's a volume discount. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, oh, you should look at our colleague Aton Green has a great paper on um, the long shot bias explaining using more or less traditional um, economics to explain the long shot bias, but also with some institutional knowledge like that fact. Uh, Eitan Green, great, great pa- paper if you want to look into that in more detail. Hey, let's let's wander off, off book, if you will, and let's test economic theory on some of the vexing issues of the day. And I've, I've got three, and they're an increasing difficulty. How's that, Paul? <laughs> It's like a this is like a Becker problem set. All right. Okay. Number one, what's going to be the impact of the portal in in collegiate athletics? But might just make it focused college football. What's the impact of the portal? More ease of transfer. And now they're even talking about doing away with the restricting it to just one time. So it may be unlimited transfers, but just say more transferability 
of college football players between schools. What does neoclassical economics tell us that's going to do to, say, the competitive balance in college football? So I think um, the very first noteworthy sports and economics paper was written by Simon Rottenberg. I hope I'm saying, I hope I'm remembering his name well, who talked about what would happen if you got rid of the reserve clause in baseball. Mm -hmm. And his argument was that you would continue to have um, competition, that basically you'd still filter, there'd be competition because various reasons. And his predictions turned out to be pretty true in baseball. So I Mm -hmm. think you'll see, I bet you'll see as much or more competition. The reason you might see more is people will be able to change their minds and move to, you know, a, a position where they're near second string to a first string, and that'll fan players out more evenly. So I would think it'll lead to more competition. But can I just say, as a labor economist, the portal is so great, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm a big believer that labor market, labor in labor markets, people should be free to go where they want. I hate non-compete clauses. All, all most labor economists do, and um, the combinate the historical combination of college athletes not being allowed to move and not being paid is about the most unusually usurious mm-hmm. situation any labor force has ever found itself in. So, especially I, a labor force that generates the revenues that that labor force generates. Exactly. So I am just so happy that the portal exists for the sake of allowing people to do what I as a college professor can do or what an engineer can do and that or a fast food worker. And that is go to the next, go to a place where I'll be happier. Mm-hmm. Well, Adi and I started collecting data on uh, recruiting at the college level and the concentration of talent. And it's people are talking about this now. We've been messing around with this for a few years, but people are now recognizing how much more consolidated talent has become at the very top, you know, Alabama's, Georgia's, Ohio yeah. State's. And one of our thoughts on it is that with, you'll love this as a labor economist, technology of search has gotten so much better with uh, high school athletes. I mean, literally now every high school athlete has a, has a huddle video with, with, and, and a guy in Tuscaloosa can dial up a person in Spokane, Washington and see exactly what's going on without getting on an airplane that used to not happen. And so you see that distance traveled has gone up distance re- uh, moving from high school to college has gone up over that period of time, over the period of time that consolidation has happened. And it just, it, it seems to me that the portal is likely to present some of the same um, uh, lubrication. It eases the market a little bit for those, the, the, the guys who might've been undiscovered early on, or might've developed a little later to move up um, when they can, and that that might lead to more consolidation over time. I don't know. I'll be interested because by the same token, you know, you'll just see more people who are who find out they get to Alabama in their second string and they're they could be first string somewhere else and they're gonna mm-hmm. we already which of the quarterbacks that's done very well in the NFL recently falls into this category. One one of the guys moved from Ohio State, you know, I'm I'm forgetting who who's who's who. Um but anyway, there was a there you've seen some of this already. So I'll be I I I don't know. I, I think it might help. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. That, that, that's, that's, that's a good, that's a good thing for us to keep in mind. And there's another related one to this. Five years and see, see what the data show. 
Well, it's confounded now, Paul, because there's the name, image, and likeness stuff. And so at the exact same time that the portal becomes um, more open, so does paying players for performance. Yeah. And so yeah. this one, it feels to me, definitely goes toward more, more competitive balance because now there's a different attribute in the utility function. Whatever you cared about before that led to consolidation, now here's a new thing to care about. Where can you get the most money? And as long as that's imperfectly related to quality of the team, and it is yeah. imperfectly related to that, you should see a little bit of flattening out. Do I, do I have that right? What are your thoughts on NIL other than just liking it? <laughs> I mostly just like it. <laughs> I, I worry a little bit about NIL. I like NIL and, and everything you just said about the various predictions, literally go back and read Simon Rotenberg's 1956 paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he analyzed all of this. Um, and, and my other thought, my only other thought on NIL and, and how it might affect things is I do worry a little bit about some of the uses of NIL, which is just, there's shady, like, I, I hope we'll get to a point where it's just used fairly and and equitably across schools, because you kind of have some schools, like in Miami, they have, it's a University of Miami that has the local guys that are just literally just paying people to play yes. there without yes. work, they don't need to do anything. And I, I'm for that, because the athletes should get some of the money from what they're creating. But until NIL is applied fairly and and consistently across schools, it could lead to some consolidation. Hopefully mm-hmm. the time will come where that won't be an issue. All right. Okay. Stepping up slightly in difficulty, diffusion of analytics in sports across teams and across sports in some cases. What explains, one, one just the reluctance to adopt analytics? It seems to provide an edge in many domains and yet you know, for example, the NFL is very slow to adopt. They're still not investing very much in the analytics departments around the league. There's been debates for years since your your colleague Romer produced a paper on the fourth down in like 2003, 2004. Only 15 years later, do you start seeing progress on that three point shooting when it was first? Yeah, a first allowed. You know, nobody used it, and now it's taken over the game. What explains the proliferation or not? of analytics across sports and across teams. You know, they introduced the shift in baseball. No one had done it before. And like 15 minutes yeah. later, all the teams were doing it. As opposed well, to Ted what Williams happened. Shifted on. <laughs> Ted What's Williams that? was shifted on in the 40s. Uh, Ted Williams well, was shifted out in the 40s. So it's, it's not exactly true. But good, 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 good. <laughs> I, 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 I have limited baseball history and Audi has infinite. So there, there's a good, <laughs> good correction. Uh, any, thoughts on, any thoughts on this book? Well, two things. You don't think the NFL is slow to adopt because they don't have enough money to afford an analytics team? You don't think that's what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Poor poor industry. And um, by the way, that was a different – there's a lot of rumors in our industry. That's not my former colleague rumor. That was a different rumor. But nonetheless, to your point, to your point, I think – look, teams are – Industries are always slow to adopt, and unlike other industries, entry can't do it, right? So if you were IBM and you're slow to adopt, some new company comes in and puts you out of business. If you're the New England Patriots and you're slow to adopt, you and 29 other teams have a monopoly with no competition, and until you adopt within, you don't have to worry about adoption. So the lack of competition is clearly going to slow the adoption process. Now, um, and and I do, but you'll see it more and more. I mean, the money in the NFL 
you know, is huge. They're going to get it right. It's harder in the NFL. Baseball, you know, Adi was doing and the things they're doing in dugouts probably, you know, just for fun 25 years ago. If baseball. Yeah, more. <laughs> That's right. More. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I was, I was being generous. And and uh, and so, you know, the the baseball, it's just so easy. And I think you're going to see more and more of it. What is interesting to me is to see how much more value there is. In baseball, they're on pretty, you know, they got the low-hanging fruit. I don't know how much more you might have studied that you have probably a better idea than I do, Adi, of how much more there is to get there. I think there's actually some more value in pitch selection still. I don't think they've nailed that because the pitch, pitching, picking which pitch to pitch when is really a complicated math problem. Well, Paul, and, it's interesting you you mentioned the, in your chapter, you actually talked, you you, t- you said you spoke to someone from the Nationals yeah. who's essentially was doing that. And I was, uh, I read that. And if I hadn't read it only 24 hours ago, I would have picked up the phone. We have a senior fellow who was uh, the AGM at the Nationals um, and in charge of analytics, Sam Andre Cohen. I was, he must have hired him. So I, I want to figure out what, I want to find out if they're actually doing this because this is, this is, I think is one of the, uh, outstanding frontiers. So they are they are working on that. Yeah. That that's going to matter very much. I th- I would think that it's relatively flat maximum, but I have I, I don't trust my intuition as much as y'all. Well, okay. So so Matt, the guy I interviewed, Matt Schwartz, and by the way, he never told me he was working on pitch selection at the Nationals. He couldn't tell me he was working out for the Nationals. He was doing analytics uh-huh. things for the Nationals, and he wrote about pitch selection <laughs> separately. You can okay. make, you can do the crossover in your head if you want, um, but yeah. but uh, what he said and his analysis, his public analysis showed that was super interesting is there is still a lot to be gained there, and and the thing is like not that the the pitchers who are kind of on the margin they are already pitching optimally because they have to. So I oh, think in the book I used Jamie Moyer five years ago as the example. Mm-hmm. Like he was hanging on in the league. And he had to be crafty to stay in the league. He had to have all, he had to have the strategy nailed. But, you know, like, does Jake DeGrom have the strategy nailed? Maybe, but he's so good, it doesn't matter. Okay. Right. And well, so. Well, Mariano Rivera was the other example. Yeah. We, Mariano, we knew what he was scoring every time. Exactly. Through the same pitch every time. Let, let me, let me, let me get your, your opinion on something related to the learning, the adaptive learning. Um, and this is uh, so I think football was we, we bring that up because it's so obvious, like you don't have to change the game. You just have to make the right decisions, for example, the fourth down um, and baseball. It, it just took some time to, to learn how to do it. But you don't have to change the way you play to, to become more analytic in basketball. One of our new uh, uh, one of our PhD students was a D1 basketball player. And I asked him specifically, why did it take so long to adopt the three point? And he said, because that's not how we played basketball. <laughs> not what we did. That's our job was to drive to the basket, dunk the ball, shoot, you know, and, and you're, you're asking us to play the game differently because of analytics. And that's just not going to happen. But mm-hmm. the other, so the real question is why, you know, what, what makes basketball change and what made football change? And I think there are different reasons. I think Steph Curry did it because he showed you, you could do it. He learned to play that way and shoot a lot and at, at a long distance and accurately. 
And that was transformation. I think it was the actual analysts who changed football, and that's just still going real slowly. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. All right, Paul, we're, we're, we're going to run out of time with you, and I want to ask you one question. That the hardest question of the off-book Becker problem set questions is, what does economics tell us is going to happen with realignment in college football? What is the end state? And we hear speculation about this, but most people you know, recognize – even if they have an opinion of where it's going to end up, we don't know how quickly or how it gets there. Do you have any perspective? And one of the reasons I ask you is because I think lots of economics tools are relevant here. I mean, incentives, obviously, but game theory, coalitions, maybe some matching. What, what are your thoughts on where we're going in college football realignment? First of all, can I just say that sitting in my office on June 30th, I, I was so unhappy that I wasn't like, 200 yards away in the athletic director's office. Right, right. When they read about UCLA at USC moving from the Pac-12 to the Big Ten, boy, I would have loved to have heard, and I haven't heard any internal reaction since. I am really curious what's going on in the higher levels of Stanford and these other schools. Mm -hmm. And it's all what you're talking about. I mean, do you, you saw, probably saw, was it, it was in the last day or two that Oregon is having conversations mm-hmm. with the Big Ten. And mm-hmm. I assume Stanford's trying to have those conversations. I honestly have no inside information. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I mean, it does seem like we're headed towards uh, one or two big conferences and mm-hmm. that aren't going to need everybody else. But you could imagine, I mean, it can go. It, and and game theory tells us a lot about what could happen, but it doesn't tell us what's going to happen because <laughs> There are many different possible equilibria. Right. And my inclination is that we're going to lead towards this big two conferences or even one conference, and they might even leave, leave the NCAA. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you saw the, the billion. How much is it? A, each school in the Big Ten is going to get $100 million a year from the new TV contract. I mean, come on, that is you know, that could pay a lot of professors' mm-hmm. <laughs> salaries. I'm sure that's what they're going to use the money for. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I I think it's hard to say. You're absolutely right. Economics tells a lot, but it tells us what could happen. It's not good in this case at telling us what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it could go a lot of ways. All right. Well, listen, Paul, thanks for coming out and talking with us some on the show. Um, thoroughly enjoyed the book. Recommend it to the listeners. Again, we're talking about a brand new book by Paul Oyer. Name of the book is an economist goes to the game, how to throw away $580, $580 million and other surprising insights from the economics of sport. It, it, it gives you some insight into economics, also gives you some new insight into sports. Paul, of course, being a, a labor economist out there at Stanford. Um, again, appreciate you coming out, Paul. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed talking to you guys. Absolutely. We enjoyed you. That is Q4 and another two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball. For the whole team, Adi Weiner has been here with me all day. Thank you, Wadi. Uh, for Eric Bradlow, for Shane Jensen, for Maddie Datz, the boss man, for Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.